0: All of
1: you on the good on earth. One. In. And one small step for man, one giant leap for man.
2: Right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. Believe it or not, we are finally back. After a whole lot of uh, stuff going on, we are back here with episode 701. That's right, this is season 7 of Talking Space. And joining us for this first episode of season 7 is myself, Sawyer Rosenstein, along with Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene.
0: Hey, Sawyer, it's good to be back. Glad to
2: have everybody back, including as well... Craftless, Cassie, how are you?
3: Oh, it's great
4: to be back.
2: And also with us is Kat Robeson. Welcome, Kat.
4: Hi, great to be here.
2: And of course, the magnanimous, the amazing Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark.
1: (laughs) I was trying to think, wait a minute, who else is here? I thought I was (laughs) like, (laughs) who?
2: Everybody in this show is great. That's why you're all here, and we're glad that you listeners are still here, too. So, It's been too long. Without any further ado, let's just get right into it. We are going to start off with some commercial cargo news. So the International Space Station may be getting some new vehicles, or at least there's some new competition for those vehicles. Right, Gene?
0: Yeah, Sawyer, grab the popcorn. It's going to get interesting for the next uh, round of uh, commercial crew contracts. Obviously, SpaceX is going to go and re-up with the Cargo Dragon. Uh, Orbital ATK is going to do the same with its Cygnus spacecraft, even though that uh, they've been a couple little bumps in the road there. But even NASA Administrator Bolden went ahead and said that they are proving they've got a pretty good uh, setup over there at Orbital ATK because they've got a spacecraft that's that's quite flexible that could fly on several boosters. Now we've got a couple of new in- entrants here. Past couple of weeks, Lockheed Martin had announced that they are also joining the fray or at least want to, and are putting in a bid for something called the Jupiter ExoLiner. This is not just going to be a cargo vehicle, from what I'm seeing. First, to to give you a little bit of an idea of what this spacecraft is all about, it's based on some heritage that they had between uh, uh, the OSIRIS-REx mission, that they're gaining some knowledge there. It's also loosely based on some technology that they have been using for MAVEN, And they want to go ahead and try to see if they can do something a little special with this one. This one uh, has a robotic arm attached to it. It's not just simply, you know, a a cargo drone. So I think they're, they're trying to use this thing as more than just a cargo vehicle. I think they're aiming at possibly using the Jupiter as a vehicle that may, in the future start satellite refueling now Sorry, are you and me and mark yourself we kind of saw some of that percolating during the launch of sts-134 a couple of years back in 2011 with a test that uh, went to the international space station just to see if that refueling was possible well my bet is i'm sure some lessons were learned from that And the Jupiter wants to go ahead and take those lessons and possibly put them into practice. So this is going to be kind of an interesting vehicle to look at. Another one that is entering the fray, and they've made no bones about that they're going to do this, is Sierra Nevada. They've taken a fully autonomous version of the, the Dream Chaser and turned it into a cargo vehicle. And the interesting feature of of this particular spacecraft is that its wings can fold in and out, something you might see like on an aircraft that uh, is in a hangar on board an aircraft carrier, say. Uh, Their wings can fold out, well, and in. Well, the wings of this spacecraft also fold in so the spacecraft can sit inside the fairing of an Atlas V. It also can fly on an Ariane five, which I find kind of interesting. So they're they're also touting some flexibility here. The official bids, I guess, are, are in work and they're being put in. But uh, wow, just what we're, where, what's happened since shuttle has shut down? It has turned into a full you know full blown race here as far as getting cargo and logistics to the International Space Station. Let's not forget either that Boeing wants to get into this fray here too and maybe also putting in a bid using a cargo version of the CST-100. So Just a little story that we're going to watch really, really carefully and see how this all plays out. So, again, grab your popcorn, folks. This is going to get really, really interesting.
2: Oh, exactly, especially since, you know, there was the whole thing about Sierra Nevada with their manned vehicle and, you know, that they weren't selected and they fought the whole thing. And that was a big deal, the fact that they're getting right back into it saying, well, we're still using our vehicle, but who needs people? We can bring up cargo and – I, all the power to them for that.
0: Yeah, the the Dream Chaser was always built to be an autonomous spacecraft in the event that you know the crew became incapacitated in some way. So they're taking that knowledge and applying it to a cargo vessel. This is something that I think they wanted to do since they weren't selected in the uh, the commercial crew area. But the Dream Chaser there ain't over. As far as carrying people, there's still some percolation going on with that, and there's still some variants going on with that. So Dream Chaser carrying crew and carrying people isn't quite dead yet, so just stay tuned for that one.
3: Always had some ideas towards making it a multi-purpose vehicle anyway. I mean, yeah. you've seen the designs, uh, that, like the idea sketches of uh, putting labs inside it and cargo it's designed to take to be used in different configurations which was a really smart move
2: oh yeah and also it's interesting with Lockheed Martin's because I didn't know much about theirs you know uh, that they're using again proven technology and I think theirs has a robotic arm too is the plan Am I right on that?
0: Yes, sir. That's correct. Um, Again, the the robotic arm I think is probably going to be used for – it could be used for many things to pluck cargo from a possible porch, say, or things like that. But I think, too, the game plan for this may be that they really want to try to see if they can leverage this as a space tug of some sort and that if you have a satellite out there that needs refueling and, you know, if that's the only thing it needs, it can come over there and try to refuel that satellite. So I think that's what they're they're also looking at too for this spacecraft. Fasten your seatbelts for this one. It's it's going to get really interesting.
3: So interesting too is with these multi-purpose ideas and having all these different features. We're talking about it. You know, it's an actual industry in space now. It's not just mm-hmm. about government contracts, it goes so much further, which is good not just for the commercial industry, but also for NASA, who reaps the benefits of all these different technologies.
0: Yeah, agreed, Cassie. One of the things that we wanted to do was really, really get get out of the business of low Earth orbit, uh, was what what the shuttle was, was all about. And, and those birds were fantastic, but they, they've done their part for king and country. And uh, now we're, we're hoping to have a whole new industry in low-Earth orbit percolating and letting letting industry take over in low-Earth orbit and let NASA do the heavy lifting.
2: Exactly. And I think that's actually a good transition into a recent NASA launch while we're talking about it, and we're talking about satellites. Uh, this past Thursday, that was March twelfth, two 2015, A quartet of satellites went into space on the same launch. That was the Magnetospheric Multiscale Mission. (coughs) That's a mouthful. So we'll just call it what everyone else calls it,
0: MMS.
2: (laughs) Those four satellites launched Thursday night aboard an Atlas V from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida, and all four of those successfully deployed. So those are going to be interesting taking a look at some views of Earth and some of the magnetic fields, and it's some crazy stuff going on with this mission, if anyone can explain a little bit about it.
4: I think this is a really fantastic mission, you know, these four uh, spacecraft are poised to look at our uh, magnetosphere, or the field of uh, magnetic around the Earth that helps shield us from things like radiation, even, you know, as anyone who was up north uh, a few nights ago might have noticed some beautiful aurora that are caused by a very large solar storm interacting with our magnetosphere. But these uh, satellites are going to be able to make measurements and be able to understand how our magnetic field surrounding the Earth is protecting us from things like solar um, radiation, the radiation of space, things that allow us to thrive and survive on Earth. I think that this is particularly an interesting mission um, because we have a... Not a companion mission per se, but we do have spacecraft at Mars, MAVEN, looking at some of these same sort of questions, like asking what happened to Mars' magnetosphere. Um, so it's really interesting that we're going to be able to kind of get information about our own and then also possibly have information about a magnetosphere that has disappeared. So this is going to be really important in helping us to understand just how Earth is protected, how this magnetosphere responds to things like solar radiation and stresses on its ability to protect Earth.
0: Yeah, Kat, one of the things that MMS is really all about, too, is also looking at space weather generations as you at generators, as you pointed out. But one of the really tricky things about this is, as Sawyer, you talked about that a little bit, too, in, in the introduction, is this was four satellites. Wow. All on one deal, which meant that the, uh, the Centaur stage had to spin around to a point, I think it was about uh, 18 uh, RPMs, and each one of these satellites had to be launched at that spin rate, and they had to be launched five minutes apart from, from the Centaur after it got into position, and uh, right over the East Coast, by the way, if I recall exactly, the launch took place, so... Um, yeah, if you were in the in the New York area, I don't think you would have been able to see anything, but it but it's still right over uh, it, it was just flying right over us. So, but it, it anyway, the way this thing had to be planned out, it was just so tricky. And gosh darn it, the MMS team, uh, ULA, everybody involved in this, they made this darn thing look easy. I think that was one of the smoothest countdowns and and the smoothest launches I've seen in a very long time. And just the challenge of getting these four birds right where they wanted them to be. But gosh darn it, they pulled it off. And and NASA and, and ULA and Aerojet Rocketdyne and ATK Orbital, they all had a hand in this. And gosh darn it, good job, everybody.
1: Don't you just love when you hear the uh, launch poll and they say, <laughs> go Atlas, go Centaur?
0: Yeah, that always gives, gives me a shiver. <laughs> it's great.
1: Go ahead, cat.
4: I was going to say, this is just a fascinating um, mission because it's going to be producing complete 3D images of ion plasma uh, when these uh, sensors that are on these different satellites are being hit by ions and particles in space. And it's really just fascinating that it's going to provide just the most complete picture we've ever had of how the Earth survives the weather of space. Just fascinating. The spacecraft design is as fascinating as the fact that it was able to be launched and launched, you know, specifically timed, how it had to be, and it went off without a hitch. So, you know, this is a mission. Right now, all four of uh, the craft are healthy. They're undergoing testing, so they can go ahead and make sure they're healthy to start their science mission. And I'm sure we'll give you an update when we have, you know, information when they start releasing some of the science from this. Yay!
2: Yay! Of course we will. Actually, it was cool. I uh, interned at Goddard a few years ago, and while I was there, I saw them building MMS. So I think I saw three of the four spacecraft that launched before they were actually launched, and now they're up in space, and hopefully we'll get some great science back from them. And uh, congratulations to everyone involved in NASA and ULA for their rocket actually working as it's supposed to. Speaking of ULA, as you may know, there's been some competition going on between ULA and SpaceX for the Air Force contracts for launches. And I think there's a little bit of an update with that. Am I right?
0: Both of the players appeared before Congress this week. Actually, all three of them, the U.S. Air Force, SpaceX or Space Exploration Technologies, and United Launch Alliance describe what's going on. The problem is this. Right now, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2015 is barring the use of the infamous RD-180 engine, which is made by Russia. As you know, this has been the sort of a point of contention for a long time. The RD-180 engine is what powers the Atlas V currently. Now, ULA has a replacement In the works, Jeff Bezos and ULA have kind of entered in an agreement where Bezos' company, Blue Origin, and uh, ULA are working together to develop a new power plant and a new vehicle, which, by the way, they are going to outsource or or crowdsource, excuse me, the name of the new vehicle uh, internally, but that's another story altogether. The issue is this. SpaceX has been saying that, well, we want in in this market and we we don't think it's fair that ULA has had this opportunity for all these years we want in on this this is a, a business opportunity for us the problem is is ULA also has a concurrent contract with the US Air Force for I believe it is what 32 cores or something like that that will go ahead and either be Delta IV or Atlas V it depends on the payload The problem we're seeing here is the fact that Pentagon and the U.S. Air Force are not happy with the fact that we might be trading one monopoly for another, because if the RD-180 ban stands, and it looks like it's going to uh, from purchasing anymore, once those are gone, essentially you could take Atlas V off the map. And this is one of the reasons why Bezos and, and ULA are kind of entering into this thing, to go ahead and build an alternative. But that alternative may not be ready in time.
4: I would not put my money on this band sticking. Uh, simply for that important point that you mentioned, that if this band stays in place, it's going to essentially create a monopoly for SpaceX. And when SpaceX is in the process of a lawsuit alleging a monopoly, it's going to be very difficult for the Air Force to support them in allowing another monopoly to occur. Also, because of political interest and business interest, it would be politically unsavvy for many representatives to support uh, something that would cost... ULA, which is an American company, and no one wants to be seen as using a policy that's going to cost an American company business. And again, my concern with, um, you know, Falcon uh, is not yet rated to carry Defense Department. Uh, It's in the process of being rated by the DOD to be able to carry defense missions. But at this time, the only craft, you know, rated to carry these is the Atlas V, and there will be something happen. I think a waiver or um, an exception to the law will eventually be made. I think you're going to still hear a lot of conversation, a lot of talk about this, a lot of posturing. But I do think that you're going to see some sort of exception that allows for the Atlas V um, to have, whether it be some sort of waiver or a contingency to where they are able to keep fulfilling contracts that they have until their new engine is ready and tested.
0: Well, the other thing, the other side of that too is, uh, I'm, I'm and I'm looking at a Washington Post article dated uh, 318, looks like the Air, U.S. Air Force is targeting SpaceX to be cleared for uh, launching military spacecraft as soon as June, or at least that's their target. The trouble, however, is this. I don't believe Falcon 9 can... Cover or can carry the heavy payloads that are now being carried by Atlas V. It's just incapable of doing it. So again, you've got a little bit of a problem here, and there may be some conservation of the engines, or or something along those lines of the engines they have on hand. I think I'm trying to recall exactly how much of a supply on uh, RD-180s that United Launch Alliance has. I think they said they've got and somebody out there is probably going to correct me on this, but I think they said they have something along the lines of about maybe three years of a supply, so they could probably go ahead and, and take care of the contracts they currently have. But future ones, that's going to be a problem. So they're they're trying to get – Yes, so, so the- but they
4: have Representative Mike Rogers is very much on their side arguing for Congress to clarify the language, saying the language mm-hmm. is not intended to limit competition and that – It needs to be clarified in order to allow for ULA to use um, at least 14 more engines instead of the five they would be forced to stick with if this more strict interpretation of the law was read, Um, saying, of course, that the Department of Defense would benefit from more competition between the Falcon 9 and the Atlas V, that if they go from only having one option to having just one other option that it's going to be bad for the American taxpayer. So I do think that there's going to be something where you're going to see some clarification of the language, allowing both SpaceX and ULA to remain competitive in this process.
0: I'm going to go ahead and throw something out there and that we haven't really talked about here yet. The RD-180 engines are coming from where? Russia, right? Russia would love to take our money. They are, they are cash-strapped at the moment, right? The, pr- the trouble is this. The RD-180 engine still could become a p- sort of political football. The Russians are not exactly too happy with this right now, and we are not happy with them as far as the geopolitical stuff is concerned. So if that picture continues to deteriorate, There may be a call again from some Russian general somewhere saying, hey, look, the U.S. is using these things to launch reconnaissance satellites to spy on us, and we are supplying the engines to them. What the heck are we doing here?
4: I doubt – I honestly doubt that's going to happen because, as you pointed out, Russia is too cash-trapped to be that picky. If we want to buy them, they're going to let us.
0: Yeah, but from a strategic standpoint, from a military standpoint, it's not exactly the smartest thing to do if you're
4: Russia. But Russia – I mean Russia doesn't have the – they can't afford to do that. I'm sorry. The the actual word escapes me right now. Yes, it would be great strategically for them to be able to say, well, since you – America are leading the West kind of in this charge to to put pressure on us for our political actions. We're going to make sure we're going to make it difficult for you to carry out your um, space objectives. And to be honest, there aren't very many situations that I can foresee happening in the next year or two, which would cause them to be able to say that. The fact is, is Russia has a vested interest in our continuing cooperation in space. And I think that they will I'm sure we're going to hear a lot of bluster and a lot of words and a lot of rhetoric from Russia about that, but they are going to do what it takes to continue our cooperation, at least in this area.
0: Yeah, I'm mean, again. I'm just playing devil's advocate for a moment and just throwing that out there. But it's something, and definitely we're going to have to, to watch for sure. But, uh, again, we, we just want to make sure that, that from coming back here from the U.S. Air Force's point of view, we just want to make sure that we're not trading one monopoly for another, that we're not trading a, you know, a, UA, uh, you know, a United Launch Alliance perceived monopoly for a now a space exploration technologies monopoly.
4: And like I said, I, I don't see that happening simply because SpaceX still is the unproven Supplier and the Department of Defense does not want to have to only rely on an unproven supplier, That's so they are going true. to they are going to do something to allow both companies to stay in the mix and to do competition. You know, there's a bipartisan group within that committee willing to commit and to work on that. I think you're going to see either a clarification or a waiver that allows ULA to use uh, further engines until they get to the point to where they're no longer reliant on that engine in order to maintain the competition because that competition is in the best interest of the American people.
0: Yeah, agreed there, and I think that's what we want to get at. That's the point where we want to get at, where these two are going head-to-head and not only improving engine performance and, and improving the booster overall, and I think the big winner, as you pointed out, is going to be the American taxpayer because it's not only going to lead to better technology but lower, lower cost.
1: Watch what you ask for, because what you're asking for is improvements in performance and a reduction in cost. Dare I say low bid with spaceflight.
0: Yeah, you got a good point, Mark. <laughs> You've got a good point. So, I
2: mean, obviously this is something that we're going to have to keep an eye on here because I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon because this battle has been going on for quite a while too. So we'll see what happens. All right, then. So now we're going to move on to something that I know was going to press a Oh, boy. And I have a Here feeling we, go. we are going to be getting a lot of listener letters on because it's about Mars One, which has been a hot button topic issue since it's been announced, the one-way trip to Mars, in case you're not quite sure what Mars One was. Well, there was recently an article that was released on the website Medium, and in it, there was an interview with one of the 100 candidates who were selected – to go on that mission, and his name is Dr. Joseph Roche. In it, he said not only basically that it is a flawed mission and that it's probably not going to go anywhere, but essentially he called it a scam, basically saying that they don't have the money for it and they're using these 100 astronauts as a way to raise the money for them. Can you help me go into a little more detail on this one, please?
0: Oh, boy. There, there was, there's so much in this article, it is just absolutely mind-boggling. First, I believe Dr. Roche is, might be former NASA, and he kind of went in on this just on a lark. He really didn't think anything of it, he really didn't think that he was going to get selected or anything along those lines, but uh, lo and behold, he went through this process and, uh, Voila. Uh, Just to give you a little background to read from the article here, uh, Dr. Joseph Roche is an assistant professor at Trinity College's School of Education in Dublin. He holds a PhD in physics and astrophysics and, well, found himself shortlisted uh, as far as one of the the lucky 100 that are going to be selected for this lovely little, little Mars mission, which, by the way, in my eyes, won't happen. The article goes ahead and claims that 200,000 applicants were initially put in there. The article kind of challenges even that number and says that they actually received only about 2,761. Now, again, grant you, this is the Medium article saying that, but I can't verify that. That is indeed the case, but there's no reason to see that they would lie about it. The interesting thing here too is Sawyer. You alluded to this in your introduction. Apparently, Dr. Roche was saying that uh, there's some sort of points system in place, and he's talking about joining what what's called the Mars One community. Uh, you get points for each round in the selection process, and they can redeem points for T-shirts and mer- other merchandise, and things like that but the kicker here it sounds
4: very much the the point system is Mars One's way of creating their applicants into brand ambassadors
0: yeah it's it's almost like you know it, you getting you know in uh, a, I, I, the, this is a poor analogy it's almost like having a, one of those little cards that you have to carry for discounts and things like that and anyway the interesting thing though here is the claim was was made that if you are asked to talk to the press and there's some or some other outlet and there's some sort of honorarium involved meaning they'll they'll go ahead and pay you for the appearance or pay you for the talk that you give 75 percent of that over to mars one now that is mentioned on on the site and it's on the mars one site it was was mentioned on a uh, new Scientist article as well as Mars One saying that, however, Mars One indicated, said, well, that's not written in stone. You don't have to do that, but we would like you to do it. Th- there's a fine line there. Long story short, I'm not going to go through it, the entire article because there, there is a lot of bombshell stuff in it. My take, on this, and Kat, we, you and I had similar thoughts on this when we were talking about this beforehand during the pre-show. Mars One has no money, period. They have, a last check, and this was based on a, a February 15th article that appeared in Space News, I believe somewhere in the range, and I'm rounding it off here, raised. And that is from the sale of swag and donations and, and things like that. That's the only investment they have. Now, they're claiming that the first flight that they want to undertake is now no longer 2018, but now 2020. And this first flight is going to be two unmanned probes that they're going to send to Mars, essentially to Mars Phoenix clones that were built for NASA they are going supposedly to Lockheed Martin to build these things. However there was an announcement as well that everything is sort of on hold right now. This was again coming from the Space News article from February 15th. The uh, explanation was that they wanted to study the results of that MIT study that we talked about when it was released here at length indicating that if the crew were to arrive at Mars some 68 or 67 days later, the entire crew would be dead. My point, and Kat, I think you and I are sort of on the same page here, is they are broke. They don't have any money to execute this mission properly. They don't have the resources to execute this mission properly. If You, you could talk about this Matters article, you could talk about the fact that you know they don't have a training facility at all for the quote crew close quote the fact of the matter is they don't have the bucks and no bucks no buck rogers it's that simple no money plus no contracts with any aerospace contractor right now they had to pull out of one with lockheed martin to build these first two landers no contracts no no training facilities just about just a crew and, you know, forgive me, but you're not going to Bud Lake, New Jersey, let alone Mars, with this. It's absurd.
4: These articles, you know, kind of the one that you're referencing to is this interview with Dr. Roche, which was today followed up with by, by a rebuttal, uh, both from SpaceX and from another participant, talking about how Dr. Roche is uh, mischaracterizing this. And, you know, there can be arguments said on how people are – interpreting either thing but when it comes down to it these considerations are semantics as you said they do not have the money to do this and they do not have any options in the foreseeable future for raising the money in any significant way to do this when we talked about the MIT study after Cassie and I were at IAC 2014 one thing that we talked about was the ethical implications of this mission Mm -hmm. at this point I don't think there is any thinking person who can say that Mars One is acting in a way that looks at getting to Mars in an ethical way. There have been countless straight accusations that Mars One is exploiting its applicants. And I think as this process goes on, it is able to give more and more credence to those concerns that there is a certain amount of exploitation Looking at these, the Mars 100 chosen for the Mars 1 project that, you know, as I said earlier, it seems like Mars 1 is setting itself up to be the Enron of private space. (laughs) And it's really something quite sad to see because the idea, you know, has some merit. Would it be the way I would choose to go to Mars? No, but the idea in and of itself has merit,
0: well, to what you were saying, Kat, there's a lovely article on the Space Review by, and full disclosure to uh, acquaintances of mine, Michael uh, Listner and uh, Chris Newman, both are really, really fantastic folks in the area of space law. They're individuals that have had some really good success, and and uh, it's worth the read to go ahead and get into that because I think they offer a really interesting. Rebuttal to the whole thing—they really, really paint a picture of why this thing is just falling apart at the seams. But I think my favorite tech, my favorite uh, quote, was actually from today's National Post. This was a quote from astronaut Julie Payette, who basically said, uh, when asked about Mars One, and Mars One, by the way, according to them, it's going to cost six billion dollars to carry out to get about a hundred people to Mars in 10 years. Just think about that for a minute. Julia Payette basically said nobody's going anywhere in 10 years. To quote her, quote, we don't have the technology to go to Mars with everything we know today, so I don't think that a marketing company and a TV type of selection is sending anyone anywhere. And she had... This was just scathing as far as her review of the whole project. And I'll leave you with this one for for some thought. Quote, So if you meet any of these people, meaning the lucky 100, if you will, don't tell them they are courageous because the only courage they had was to sign up on a website. Close quote. Anybody want, you know, some ointment and some gauze to go with that burn?
3: Outside of the space community, what I found interesting, I'm a big fan of Dan Savage, known, you know, as a sex columnist, primarily. (laughs) And actually, he put up a video by Rebecca Watson of Skeptics with her talking about Mars One. But his headline that he attached to it was, coming soon, space-based reality snuff TV. And I just think that sums up one of the other core issues with this whole idea is that. I don't know. I mean, I know there's people who watch snuff films and things, but as like a mainstream, you know, reality show that I mean, there's people who have trouble watching Survivor because of the terrible things they make these people go through. Can you imagine getting like the public of all these countries to watch people die on television? That's the end result of all of this. Yeah, pretty much. And so I think, you know, it. I mean, even if you think about their ultimate goal, it's kind of a scary proposition. I mean, who are they going to even actually sell this TV show to as a production company? You know, if you come at it from any angle, it has such intense problems. And the other thing is, it's so easy to get people who have applied to defend this, everything about this. Because the truth is, When desire comes into play, rationality goes out the window. I know people who applied, and they really want to go. And they really believe in this project because they want to go so badly that they are willing to believe anything that keeps their hope up that they're going to step on Mars someday and that they're going to even die on Mars someday. And that's kind of incredible, but it's also why you have to take anything said by them with a huge, huge
4: chunk of salt. Getting- Absolutely. This is the exact situation that allows for the exploitation of these people. And this is why this gets to the grain of why this project has so many ethical issues. It is ripe for exploitation. When you look at a private company looking to make profit so that they can send people to Mars for a reality show, there's exploitation there. and. That exploitation really makes us problematic. Really, you have to look at the ethical issues. This is why personally I'm a big advocate of thinking that we need, you know, a coalition of space agencies, public space agency, governmental space agencies, to make this first mission to Mars. Because in that way, you're able to help curb some of that possible exploitation of people so willing to go that they're willing to overlook huge ethical quandaries.
0: Well, the only people that are going to be able to afford to actually do this and do it in the correct manner will be a consortium of nations backed up by industry, period first off, as Julie Payette said today, we just don't know how to do it yet. We don't know how to do it from a technical standpoint yet. We don't know how to do Mars from a biological standpoint yet, from a life support system standpoint yet. And heck, we don't even know what to do from a psychological standpoint yet. Meaning, as NASA had discovered, there are differences between the psychological makeup, say, of a short-term shuttle flight, say, and a long-term ISS flight, somebody that is good for basically a two-week flight on the shuttle, may not have the same type of mindset to deal with a six-month or even one-year mindset that it's going to be needed to deal with a long-term mission. And that's just on board the ISS with the Earth spinning below you 250 miles down. So imagine what it's going to be like on a Mars mission. To get back to what you folks were saying with the reality show, just to add this, the production company bailed out a while back ago. The production company uh, Endermol, E-N-D-E-R-M-O-L, they bailed out of this thing. They're the same company that gave you Big Brother. They're They're no longer associated with this. So... I'll put that out there. That announcement was made a few weeks ago.
3: And that's really when this died because that's actually the only thing this had going for it was the idea that they could sell this show. But I'll come back to that snuff, you know, snuff TV, really. I should also add that the Rebecca Watson video, should you want to look it up on YouTube, is called The Bold Plan to Send 24 Business School Graduates to Mars to Die on TV. Because she actually analyzed the people who, applied, who made it to the top 100 and found that it's largely people with MBAs who made it. I don't know. That doesn't seem like who I'd want to found a colony with.
0: Hey, Kat, just to speak to your, your funding uh, model here, I'm looking right at the Mars One site, and this is an article that they posted today as we record this, uh, March 19th. It's supposedly supposed to answer all of the questions that have been coming up and with all due respect, I'm reading some of this as we're talking, and the replies to these things are like looking into parallel mirrors. To quote Mars One as far as the budget is concerned, the $6 billion, is it enough for this mission? To quote Mars One, NASA's lowest cost estimate that I've ever seen, meaning the Basil Andestorp, who is in charge of Mars One, As ever seen, is about $35 billion, but let's not forget that Mars One is very different. We are organizing a mission of permanent settlement, where we do not need to worry about the return trip, which is where the most complexity lies. The return trip involves bigger rockets that can get systems to Mars, bigger landing systems to land large components for the return trip to Mars, developing whole new launch systems that can launch from Mars, even from Earth launch is difficult. Our cost, $6 billion, comes from good discussions that we have had with established aerospace companies from around the world. They have already been building systems for ISS and for unmanned Mars missions, which are similar to the ones we need. We are very confident that this is all the budget we will need.
4: My response to that is it costs $2.5 billion to put Curiosity on Mars, and that's one rover.
0: Yeah. That that don't
4: have to worry about life support. That's Two and a half billion dollars. And you know what? The point that
3: they made about the autopilot, how the Mars One craft will be on autopilot, so they don't actually need pilots. Well, that's fine when you don't have any living cargo. But you kind of want redundancy when you've actually got people. You want a pilot. You want you want people leading the mission who with technical capability. You don't want all business school grads. You actually do want people who know how to fly things. It seems incredibly foolish to think that you would send humans all the way to Mars on autopilot alone.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to book in, you know, as as we talk about this and kind of even just wrap up the conversation, to realize that we need to be careful in distinguishing the Mars One applicants from Mars One, because the way that Mars One is currently set up, it is set up to exploit its applicants. And so, you know, when you kind of see a few of them back and forth in the press with two different views, you're able to kind of say, oh, well, it's just the the petty back and forth of two applicants who have two different points of view. But I think we really need to focus on the fact that it's unfeasible. Mars One's funding its way of staffing, its technical capability is just unfeasible and we need to focus on that and make sure that that we steer away from focusing, not saying that anyone in this conversation has, but steer away from focusing on personal qualities or the things that the applicants are saying because when you look at the big picture and you take a step back, As you said, Cassie, these applicants want so badly to go to Mars that they are willing to suspend their rationality because of that desire. And to me, it appears as if Mars One is very happy to take advantage and to exploit that.
0: One of the things I want to add before we leave this topic are two things. One, the misnomer out there that I'm getting from some media outlets, and it's mainly some local media, I'm not sure that – The mainstream media, the larger folks are getting this. But one of the things I want to get out there right now is that this is not a NASA mission. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration has nothing to do with Mars 1, 0, zip, zilch. That's one of the things I want to get out there because I've encountered in my travels the mix-up that this is indeed a Mars flight. I mean, this is indeed a NASA initiative. NASA's got nothing to do with Mars One. This thing's going to crash and burn eventually because it's just going to fall down under its own own weight And uh, financially. They don't have the investors, even though on the website they claim they're getting investors together. They're, they're, they're saying that um, this summer, for instance, they're talking about announcing some new... New partners, new investors, and so on. The problem is this. When you think of investors, the investors want to see a return on that investment. There is no business model here. What is it? I don't know. That hasn't been articulated. It's crazy. The whole thing is just something that is so worthy of P.T. Barnum, it's ridiculous, and it's not going anywhere.
2: And I think that's the perfect note to leave this topic on, although we should keep this conversation going through you, the listeners. And you know you can always send us your thoughts by email, mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com, on Twitter at Talking Space, or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash which a lot of you have been liking. So thank you for liking us and keep following us on Twitter. Lots of good stuff coming. Now, we've been off for quite a while, and all of us have had certain things going on during that time off, and we want to actually highlight a few of them. And uh, I think the first one, and one of my favorites, is what Mark has been doing, and it involves one of my favorite things. Go,
1: Mark. Mark, do you want to say what that is? Well, first – actually, it is first. <laughs> I don't know how many people are, are familiar with this. I certainly wasn't to, to any great degree until recently. The FIRST organization, which FIRST is an acronym, it stands for Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology. Their vision and their mission is to transform our culture by creating a world where science and technology are celebrated and where young people dream of becoming science and technology leaders. Dean Kamen is the founder. He's the inventor of the Segway and many, many other things that we could do a whole show just talking about about the founder and his, his accomplishments. But um, what I really wanna tell you about is the, what I've learned about the FIRST Robotics Competition part of the organization. There's different ages that FIRST programs for, from elementary school through middle school and high school. There's the FIRST LEGO League, the FIRST Tech Challenge, and of course the thing that I'm most familiar with, the FIRST Robotics Competition. Anyway, the group that I've been part of is here in Lake City, Florida. It's uh, on Twitter. If you want to follow them, their hashtag or their uh, their name is at FRC three five five six. Name of the team is Get Smart. They started in 2011. They won an award in their first competition in 2011, and for the past four years, we've been in the finalist amongst the finalists, at the Orlando, Florida competition that that is closest to us and that the team has gone to. What this is all about is the team, in this case this year on January third, they got the game book. They got their first exposure to what the game was for this this year. They have six weeks and a couple of few days to build a robot, having just seen the design. And in that six weeks, and what I've learned is that teams vary from almost nonstop working on it to teams that work on weekends they have various schedules it's whatever works for the team and there's a team that that i found out about that's up in pennsylvania just to give you an idea of the range there's teams that are real uh... large groups from many schools like a whole county of of several high schools may be having students that are part of an individual team there's a team from Pennsylvania, Kinchersville, Pennsylvania. They're called the Cybersonics, and team number 103. So they were early in the process of the uh, first organization. But they won an award at Orlando that I just wanted to comment about because I think it's so incredible. They live out in the middle of Pennsylvania, and as they said, it takes us 40 minutes to get to a McDonald's, an hour to get to a hospital. And they won an award for entrepreneurship. The variety of the teams and the ingenuity both in building the robot and in how their team is organized is just phenomenal and it's my first exposure to working with high school students and seeing them totally, totally energized in what they're doing, really, really working hard in many cases they've got to learn totally new skills. Teams are divided up from you know a, a group that does the actual construction of the robot. Students that are working on the CAD design, students that are working on a a public relations team, a PR team, and outreach to the community. It, It just goes on and on, and I can't begin to tell you how impressed I am. Just for a little trivia, you know, here I am a long, long time Federal Aviation Administration Electronics Technician, and you would think I would be a perfect fit with my electronics skills that I've been honing for a long time. Well, as it turns out, working on things that are sometimes decades old doesn't necessarily give you an edge <laughs> <laughs> with something that changes continually. It's been a lot of fun. I'm looking forward. We've, we've competed in one event in Orlando. We were eliminating the quarterfinals. We came away feeling like winners because it was a constant process over a couple of days of practice with a robot, fix it when it broke, try and make it better. And it's just, it's a really dynamite experience. If you want to learn more about FIRST and what they do, their website can be easily found at usfirst.org. That's U-S-F-I-R-S-T dot O-R-G. And if you want to watch some of the competitions, of which there are over a hundred of these regional competitions around the country, with teams coming from all over the world, at Orlando there were... Uh, Let's see, a team from Brazil, three teams from Turkey, a team from Germany, and a team from Puerto Rico, and I believe one from Brazil. Wow. Um, We're going to Houston, Texas in a couple of weeks. There's a bunch of teams from Texas, Mexico. There's teams from – I saw a video for a regional event in Australia. They had teams from the Philippines, from China, from Australia. You know, everybody – is drawing from anywhere that they can get from, from where they are to where the competitions are. And um, it's not a small budget thing. Teams raise their own money. Maybe some of them have funding from, from big business donors, but there's a whole lot of get out there, spread the word, and ask for community support. And uh, it's really, really a lot of fun. I'm enjoying every bit of it. And uh, cheer for Get Smart. Send them some encouraging words.
0: I just gave them a shout-out on Twitter, Mark, so that we're going to be talking about them here on the on this episode. Very quickly, Mark, what what are the competitions like? Is it a set of tasks that the robots have to accomplish in a certain period of time? Are there certain – what exactly does the yeah, competition entail?
1: Sure. I, I'll give you a nutshell. The uh, theme of the game this year is, is along the lines of recycling. The name of the game is Recycle Rush. Uh, on the first website, you'll see uh, a link if you dig around, you'll find a video that shows you the basics of the game. But at this point, since we're in mid-season, you can just watch some of the competitions and you'll get an idea of what it's about. But basically, there are those plastic, we call them totes, but the things that you see parts and products delivered to stores in with the, the two sides that flip up and open this rectangular plastic tote that's full of whatever. Well, there are I should know this number, uh, <laughs> 58, I, somehow I'm getting the wrong number there, but there's 50-some-odd totes on your side of the field. And the object is to to pick up totes, to stack them, to put them in a position where they count for score depending on how many you get on the scoring platform. There's recycling containers, which uh, you would think of it as a trash can that you would throw you know, plastic bottles and stuff in there's uh, these recycling containers that you stack on top of the totes so basically a lot of the robots are either designed to from the from the very basic ones to push totes to get them into a scoring position mm-hmm. or to pick them up stack them and to manipulate these containers wow. and the variety of designs i mean there's some that'll just knock your socks off. to holy cow how did they come up with that how did they design that and when you see how much of it is done in cad on a computer uh, our team has a, a CNC machine, and we actually made gears. Uh, not Ooh. from anything I know, trust me, <laughs> but from the other mentors on the team learning, and then the students in turn learning, and, uh, and learning how to operate some of this, uh, you know, real high-tech machinery, machinist-type work. So it's stack and totes containers cheering wildly Doing crazy stuff and having a great time.
0: <laughs> Sounds grand, Mark. And again, I envy you. You're touching the future. I'm, I'm all smiles listening to this because this is, I mean, the r- robotics is going to be the key to, uh, to uh, a lot of things going forward. And these kids are not only learning robotics, but they're also learning a, a valuable skill, even if they don't go into this as a, as a career. They're learning teamwork. And you are part of that, and you're helping foster that. So hats off to you, sir. Thanks a whole bunch for taking the time and explaining what you're up to. Good luck to your team in Houston, and I hope you uh, you scored well well over there. I'm, I'm, I'm mighty proud. i I got buttons busting all over the place right now.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, as, as time goes on, I'll, I'll talk about some of the things that are so incredibly remarkable, and it's more than the robot. One of the things Dean Kamen says, it's more than robots. So I'll talk more about that another time. Thanks for the time to, to share.
2: Oh, definitely. Like I said in the intro, one of my favorite, you know, it's one of my favorite things, STEM education and robots. You can't really beat it. And uh, this is something that's going to be a continuing series for sure. This is not the last time you'll hear about it. And hopefully we'll have that information about your team and the project as a whole in the show
0: notes. Definitely. And uh, Mark, tell us what happens in Houston. I'm looking forward to it.
2: Alright, now to finish things off, just recently the newest edition of the list of NASA spinoffs came out, the 2015 edition and in it it talks about all of the technologies that we use every single day that has come from space, because I know we get asked all the time, well, why do we still have NASA? What have they ever done for us? I know it's done a lot, especially for you, Cassie, and you're going to highlight one of those tonight on what will also hopefully be a continuing series, right?
3: Yes, absolutely, because spinoffs are so important to recognize, and People don't realize what the real ones are and how important they are. I recently, I guess seven weeks ago now, I broke my leg very badly while ice skating. I broke the bottom and top of both my tibia and fibula. And I had to have emergency surgery. They put a titanium rod in me and everything. And then, of course, I got shipped off to physical therapy. And I discovered this wonderful invention there called Game Ready. What it is is a, basically a tub of ice water and they hook a hose up to these ergonomic wraps that are made for all different parts of the body. In my case, they use it on the ankle. And it pumps ice water for the rice system, where like we all ice our injuries. But this is cold water, so it's actually more effective than ice. And then it also pumps air and it contr- it compresses to mimic the contraction of your muscles. So basically, it keeps your limbic system working, and it helps drain fluids. It has a lot more benefits than simply icing. It keeps everything a little more normal. Well, it turns out that this is a NASA spinoff that was featured in the 2004 edition of NASA spinoff because it was invented by Bill Elkins, who is considered one of the fathers of the space suit. He... Actually designed... He was responsible for the extended Apollo suits that never got to fly for Apollo 18, 19, and 20. But he is actually designing spacesuits before NASA was created. He was working at Wright-Patterson... Uh, sorry, wright Patterson Air Force Base. And they were trying to figure out how to make astronaut couches and spacesuits work. And he's actually... The person who's been subjected to the most G's because while testing out a suit, they put him in the centrifuge and they put him at 16 and a half G and he remained conscious, which makes him the person who remained conscious at the highest G's. So he's quite an incredible man. And he never directly worked for NASA, he worked with a team at Ames. He always worked for contractors, many of them over the years, starting with Lytton. And he was also the inventor of the toroidal joint, which they had problems with constant pressure joints. They would break down too soon. So these joints that he created extended the lifespan of a spacesuit immensely. His inventions completely changed spacesuit designs and affected what they were today. So... Now he's, I guess, I was just reading an interview from him from 2009, and he was 80 then, (laughs) and he was still working in developing medical devices based on spacesuit technology. He created the liquid pumping system, or was one of the creators of the liquid pumping system that is the basis of EVA Suits Now, and that's exactly what's healing me today. It's also owned by practically every professional sports teams, all the major sports colleges, Olympic training centers. A lot of professional athletes actually buy them to have at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's keeping people healthy. It can work with a battery pack, so it can be used right on a field. They say it halves recovery time. Professional trainers swear by it and say that it always cuts recovery time in half in my case it got rid of my bruising and swelling so quickly after surgery it was incredible and they use it at the end of each therapy session to get rid of the swelling I you know accrue during my therapy sessions so I'm very very grateful (laughs) to Bill Alkins and the technology that he created that enabled us to go to space and now get healthy
0: Hey Cassie, really quick. Uh, yeah. The How long did it take for the, the swelling to come down with, with the use of that and how often did you have to use it?
3: Well, I go to therapy three times a week and I get swollen every time because I, I just started putting weight on my foot two days ago. Um, today I officially figured out how to walk. So <laughs> I'm pretty swollen tonight just from my ankle being so disused and So it's kind of like I get, you know, beat up every day as I try to use it more. But it's in a good way, (laughs) part of the process. So it really takes, but it does take my swelling down. Uh, At the end of a session, I'll feel, you know, really strained with puffiness and everything. By the time I go home, I feel okay. And that's about 15 minutes with the game ready.
0: Space technology working
2: for you. And that's why when people ask, oh, why do we fund NASA? There's your answer.
3: Well, and here's the thing. Because of NASA spinoffs, this is the stat that I have read repeatedly. I wish I could remember a source off the top of my head. But for every dollar that the government invests in NASA, our economy grows by $7. Keep that in mind. And this is why. It's the spinoffs.
2: Exactly. Well, I'm glad I was able to help you. And hopefully we'll be able to highlight more of NASA spinoffs as we go throughout the year. And with that, that brings us to the conclusion of the first episode of Season 7. Wow. Seven seasons. That's crazy. Wow. (laughs) Well, thank you for everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene Mikulka.
0: Thanks, sir. And just a real quick thank you to everybody hanging in there with us. We've had a a lot of uh, personal bumps in the road. One on this side, there was a real heavy duty. Long story short, my sister passed away. And a lot of you out there were sending me notes and so on, so I wanted to say thank you for all that, and thank you on behalf of the family. I appreciate it.
2: We were all thinking about you. Thank you as well for joining us, CraftLass, a.k.a. Cassie.
3: Thank you.
2: And thank you for joining us, Kat Robeson.
3: Always a pleasure.
2: And thank you for joining us, Mark Raderman.
1: You know, this is an excellent substitute for Twitter, Facebook, and all that stuff. (laughs) Thanks, everybody.
2: (laughs) Who needs social media when you've got (laughs) us to fill you in on everything going on in the space world? Although, of course, you can always reach us on social media. So it's a good combination of the two. And we hope you'll join us next episode. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.